And we're in the book of Philippians today, um, again. And so I invite your attention to that marvelous book. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 26 today. I want to begin with uh, just a little background story of some missionaries. Uh, in 1934... John and Betty Stam were new missionaries with China Inland Mission. Along with their three-year-old daughter, Helen, they were serving in a small town in China. But civil war had erupted nearby, and the communist or Red Party forces were fighting with uh, government forces, and the the magistrate of the town knew uh, that it was life-threatening for any foreigners, especially missionaries, so he came to the Stan's missionary residence and urged them to flee for their lives. Taking no chances for his wife and daughter, John arranged for Betty and their baby girl to be escorted away to safety before their plans could commence. The 19th Division of the Red Army had streamed over the mountains behind government troops and entered the town. Gunshots echoed in the streets as the rebel forces began looting and killing It wasn't long before some of them began pounding on the mission station's front gate. John opened it and invited the soldiers inside, asking them if they were hungry. Betty set before them tea and cake. Their courtesy met nothing, and the soldiers demanded all the money the Sams had. John handed it over. Still, the men tied up John's hands as he pleaded for the safety of his wife and daughter. All three of them were eventually taken to a local prison where some of the prisoners were released to make room for the stamps. In the midst of all the chaos, little Helen began to cry. Nothing would console her. Finally, one of the soldiers offered to kill her since she was bothering the others. Some of the prisoners who were in the process of being released Um, asked how anyone could think of killing an innocent baby. The soldiers turned to him and said, Well, I will allow the baby to live tonight, but you will take her place. And with savage rage, he hacked that prisoner to death right there in the prison yard. The Stams knew that they would eventually not be allowed to live. They would certainly not be allowed to live much longer. John wrote a hasty letter to the mission explaining how they had been captured and ended his note with the words, May Christ be glorified, whether by life or death. The next day as the soldiers, as as they were leaving, John handed the letter to the postmaster and the postmaster, a believer, asked John where he was going. He looked at this man and quietly said, I don't know where these soldiers are going, but we're going to heaven. That day, after a forced march of 12 miles, they arrived at the town where they stopped for the night at a wealthy landowner's home who had fled upon their arrival. Betty was allowed to tend to her little girl, but Betty did more than that. She hurriedly fed her baby, hugged her goodbye, and then wrapped her in a sleeping bag and hid her in one of the rooms of that large home. Inside the sleeping bag, she placed a change of clothing and all the money she had, $10. The next morning, the young couple was led to the town square without their baby, and none of the soldiers seemed to notice. 
Both John and Betty's hands were tightly bound. As they were led past jeering soldiers and curious citizens who had been forced to come and watch, they were stripped of their outer garments in the tradition of common criminals being, being led to execution. John was barefoot, having given his socks to Betty to keep her warm in the winter air. The commanding officer stopped and ordered John to kneel. John and Betty exchanged a few words that went unrecorded on earth. And then John knelt, and as he was praying softly, a soldier flashed his sword through the air and severed John's head with one vicious swing. Bystanders reported that Betty did not scream out, but merely shivered and then fell to her knees beside her husband's body. And there with her hands bound, as she knelt there next to him, the same sword rose and fell again, ending her life. Their baby, Helen, was found two days later. Her muffled cries in that abandoned house had aroused curiosity from neighbors. They called a Chinese pastor who, took, who came and took her to his home. Sometime later, she was safely delivered to her maternal grandparents who would raise her while also serving as missionaries in China. Later, she came to the United States where she lived with her uncle and aunt. She would grow up to serve the Lord in a variety of ways, including writing. And she passed away, in fact, just uh, a couple of years ago, Helen Stam. As for her martyred parents, a small group of Christians took their bodies and buried them on a hill nearby. John was 27 years old, Betty 28. Their deaths would impact and inspire the evangelical world in the West. For instance, at Moody Bible Institute, 700 students immediately dedicated themselves to missionary service, no matter what. Their biography would be written by the daughter-in-law of Hudson Taylor. The Courage of John and Betty Stam wasn't the first to be written in the annals of church history. In fact, on their headstones were lines from a letter written by another martyr. Lines inscribed next to their names. John Cornelius Stam. That Christ may be glorified whether by life or by death. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Scott Stam, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And those words come from the Apostle Paul in the section of Philippians 1 that we're going to look at today. <clears throat> Can you say with, uh, with them and with Paul, to live is Christ? It is saying that the sum of my life is Christ. Or to say that the one thing I am living for is Christ. <clears throat> and is that what others would say about you? Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be the point of your life. As Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians here, he doesn't know whether he is going to live or die. 
He prefers to die, as we'll see. But he gives three reasons why it is important for him to continue living. He says that to live is Christ in order to multiply fruit, in order to motivate growth, and in order to magnify Christ. So let's start at Philippians 1, 21. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, that will mean fruit from my labor. So he's wanting to live on for Christ in order to multiply fruit. Paul knows that the, one of the benefits of living longer is that it gives him more opportunity to, root, to reap more fruit for the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And this fruit goes on into eternity because it is about the gospel. It is about people. It is about the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And so that fruit goes on into eternity. All the treasures of earth come with expiration dates. They're all going to uh, spoil and rust and turn to dust. But the things of heaven and the fruit of our ministry in his name go to heaven. You know, you've heard you can't take it with you. That's true of everything on earth. But there is something you can take with you. And that is... Your ministry for Christ here. The things that you do in his name to, to bless others, uh, to, to share his word, to serve others. That is fruit that glorifies him and goes with you into heaven. Betty Stam, shortly before her martyrdom in China, wrote, When we consecrate ourselves to God, we think we are making a great sacrifice when we are only letting go of some little trinket. And when our hands are empty, he fills them with his treasures. Paul desires to live on because it will mean more fruit for the glory of God. What is your, living, your reason for living? The second reason Paul says to live is Christ is in order to motivate Growth, verse 24 and 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So, in other words, Paul says, um, I know that God has me remaining here for your progress, for, for your growth in your spiritual life. Paul is not so interested in his own growth or his progress or how he's doing. He's interested in them. He is uh, exemplifying what he's going to say a few verses later. If you look at Philippians 2.4, he writes there, <clears throat> Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also 
for the interest of others. And that is what what Paul is doing here. He is interested in motivating their growth. And Paul is willing to postpone, if the Lord wills, his own arrival in glory for their sakes. Now, remember that Paul has already seen heaven. He knows how great it is. He's seen firsthand, 2 Corinthians 12 tells us. And, and yet he's willing to give up that to stay in order for the benefit of other people to grow in Christ. Now, when Paul was given this vision of heaven, <clears throat> he was told he, he couldn't share that with anyone. In fact, he says he saw things which were unlawful for a man to speak. Now, I'm not very happy about that. I want to know what he saw. But he's not allowed to share with us what that, those things it were. By the way, I think that calls into question those who say they have died and gone to heaven and come back, and here's what it was like. I mean, if the Apostle Paul himself was not allowed, he said it was unlawful for man to speak those things. I kind of doubt the other things, those other stories. <clears throat> so he, he isn't allowed to tell us, but perhaps it is because if we knew what he knew, if we could see what he saw, then we'd, we would quit going to doctors and taking medicine and exercising, and we would just eat pizza and chocolate cake and arrive home all the more sooner. Uh, so maybe that's why we don't know. But the point is, Paul knew firsthand what heaven was like, and he was willing to postpone that for their sake. So to live as Christ in order to multiply fruit, in order to motivate growth, and in order to magnify Christ. Verse 26 begins with so that or that, indicating that, that this is a purpose statement yes he wants to multiply fruit and motivate growth but here is his purpose for doing so here's the driving force the core desire that he has verse 26 so that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in jesus christ by my coming to you again that is if Paul is allowed to live, it will lead to the Philippians having all the more reason to praise and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, ultimately, Christ will receive greater glory by Paul continuing to minister and disciple and proclaim the gospel and by their rejoicing. And so that is what is driving him that Christ may be magnified, glorified more. In fact, look at the end of ver, uh, look at verse twenty, the verse just before the section we're we're in here, where he says, "There, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life 
or by death. That's his driving passion that Christ will be magnified in his life no matter what happens. So can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. What are you here for? What is your purpose in being here? If not to magnify Christ, to live for him. Um, Are you living for your next paycheck? Some people are in such a condition that that's all they're thinking about, just getting from one paycheck to the next and that consumes them. Or maybe you're living for the weekend. I remember as a young man in the army and as an unbeliever, that's everything I lived for was the weekend so I could could party and uh, do shameful things. But that was... My life revolved around that. Or maybe you're living for golf. I, I have a, a dear friend, a brother in Christ, who uh, recently retired. And um, I remember a year before he retired, all he could talk about is, when I retire, all I'm going to do is play golf every day. That's my life. And I thought, really? Your, your life is golf? Or, or maybe you're living for a house trying to accumulate the funds you need to buy a certain house or kind of house. Or maybe you did buy it and you found it to be a money pit, and now all you're living for is to get the funds to fix up that monstrosity. Maybe you're living to grow a portfolio and you're constantly checking how your stocks are doing and that's your life. Remind you what Jesus said to the Rich farmer, the farmer said, so I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there, there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then Whose will those things be which you have provided? Or maybe, and I think this is true for the majority of people, you're living for your family. That's what you're living for, them. I want to remind you that Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone follows me and does not hate father, mother, wife, child, sister, brother, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know that what Jesus is talking about there is a comparative love, that the love for him is so vastly beyond the love for others that it would seem like hate in relationship to it. We know that he calls us to love your wife, to honor your mother and father and so forth. But our love for him should be so much higher. It's not that we shouldn't love them, but how much more should we love him? If you had to choose, for instance, between um, your brother and Christ, who would you choose? So, now don't misunderstand. These are not necessarily bad things I've talked about. These are some great things. They're normal desires, but the point is, are, are those things a, 
a part of your life or are they the reason that you're living? Remember that Jesus doesn't want to be simply a part of your life. He desires to be the point of your life. So Paul is able to say, for to me, to, to live is Christ, and secondly, to die is gain. How do you view death? So I heard one man say, despite the high cost of living, it remains very popular. And you probably feel that way too. But... Uh, you know, when you think about death, is it a scary proposition to you or is it something that you are looking forward to? A tombstone, a, a, an ancient tombstone in London, England, there's this inscription um, below the, the name of a certain Solomon Pease. It says, Beneath these clouds and beneath these trees, lies the body of Solomon Pease. This is not Pease, it is only his pod. Pease has shelled out and gone home to God. <clears throat> so, do you count death as loss or as gain? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is Gain. I think most of us look at it as loss. But it is a loss for the loved ones left behind, right? It is certainly that. But it is a gain for a believer to die. For an unbeliever to die, it is a tragic eternal loss. But for a believer to die, it is gain. So Paul says... To die is gain, but it is a hard choice. Verse 22, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, or I, I don't know. It's impossible for me to say. It's a hard choice. He, Paul wants to go to heaven, but he's willing to stay on earth alive if it is necessary. Verse 23, for I am hard-pressed between the two. It's a, it's a difficult, hard choice. So, I wonder why don't we struggle with that choice? If you're facing the prospect of death, if, if you knew that uh, you had a terminal illness or uh, that, that you were going to be facing death soon, why can't we say to live as Christ and to die as gain? Why is that a scary proposition to us? We ought to be fearless in the face of death because it is just a passing through a door into eternal bliss and glory with Jesus Christ. There's nothing to fear there. So, let's say a, a gunman uh, held you up and he has his gun to your head and says, do you want to live or die? 
Would you say, what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, (laughs) he would probably just put you out of your misery right there. (laughs) Now, of course, we, we, we wouldn't have the presence of mind in that moment to, to say something like that. I, I doubt we would anyways. But really, that should, be, that should be what's in our heart. That, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because if you kill me, I get to instantly be with Jesus. That's great. But, and if you let me live, I get to live for Jesus. That's great. I win either way. That should be our attitude. That is true of us. It's a hard decision because even though he wants to be with Jesus, he is willing to stay there. It is also a spiritual choice. Verse 23, he says, For I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He says, I have this desire to depart. And uh, to to understand Paul's passion in what he's saying here uh, might help to understand a couple of the words he uses here in particular. The word desire is actually a very intense, strong word, other places, it's, tr- it's translated like uh, craving something, to an intense desire to, to crave something. And then the word depart, having a desire to depart, is uh, actually the Greek word that means to, to be loosened from or to be set free from something. It was a A word used of soldiers when they were taking down tents, getting ready to move on. And that may be what Paul had in mind because, remember, he was a tent maker. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about these bodies being like tents. So perhaps that was in his mind, this unloosing of this tent to be set free. It was also used of untying the rope of a ship so it can set sail. Uh, so in general, this was uh, the idea of unloosing something to free it up. That's his word here, to depart. Having this longing, this craving to be set free from this life and to be with Christ, which is far better. That's his desire. And notice that he has a destination in mind. Having a desire, a longing, a craving to depart and to be with Christ. Death is not an end. It is an arrival. It is a destination at which we arrive at the love of our lives. It means to be with Christ. The one whom our our hearts yearn for. Now I imagine that. You're probably like most people, when you think about death and what it will be like, one of the first things you think about is a family and friends who have gone on before, right? You think, I'm going to be reunited with them. It's going to be great to see them. We're going to rejoice together. And that is true. But there's something which is much greater than that. 
and that is to be with Christ. Now, we don't think of it that way, at least I don't think most of us do, because we haven't experienced that yet. We don't know how wonderful that is going to be. Or we are not thinking about the degree of love with which he loved us so much that he died for us and how we should yearn for him and to fall at his feet there. But I believe that when we get to heaven, the moment we are there and we see Christ for who he is and fall before him, we will be so enthralled with him so desirous of being in his presence, so, so filled with joy at it, that that will take precedence over all things, even our loved ones in that moment. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. <clears throat> in the passage that Chris read earlier this morning from Psalm 16, Remember, verse 11 says that in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it will be like to be there, and Paul knew it. And so he says, for me to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul doesn't long for relief from pain or problems or prison he longs simply to be with Christ for Paul nothing was better than this therefore he concludes it is far better so how do you look at life and death can you say to me to live is Christ the most important thing in my life, the, the point of my life is Christ and magnifying him. And for me, to die is gain because I know that I will be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever in heaven. Do you know that? If you're not sure of that today, that if God were to require your life from you this day, do you know that you would be with him? If you don't know that, then I would love to talk with you about how you can be assured of that. Jesus paid the price for your sin so that you can have assurance of that. So I hope you won't leave this place today without knowing that for certain. And if you are a believer, you know that you are bound there, then I challenge you to search your heart today. And ask, am I living in such a way that others would say of me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, we thank you for this uh, passage and the testimony of Paul's uh, so great commitment to you. And that would be our aspiration too, Lord. We want to be able to say with sincerity and truth that to live is Christ and to die is is game. And Lord, if there are things in our life which um, interfere with that, which impede our being able to say that, which take precedence over you, Lord, reveal that even to us that we may repent of those things and commit those to you 
that we would be a church of people who live for Christ and who face death fearlessly because to die is gain. And may it all be for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.